Thank you for that, and it's, it is good to be back with you. I came back for the night nice social, actually, and so anytime you have a special event like that, I, I will be here. Um, and uh, it, it is really good to be back. It's been a, a tiring but very enriching time. Uh, just returned, uh, actually, from a week of vacation, and before that, I went to church with our high school youth. Uh, while I was gone, So some things are changing, and uh, actually my son got engaged at a cabin where we, we were in a third of it, up in the mountains, and, and there's this swinging bridge across the river right at the front of the cabin, and that went out there on that swinging bridge and got down on his knees, and uh, what a great image for beginning a marriage, I think. So it's, uh, it's good, though, to be back. We're, we're continuing our series of sermons through the Gospel of Luke. It's at the end of the summer, but we're only midway through the Gospel of Luke. And we're in actually chapter 12, not 13. So uh, if you're reading along, it's chapter 12, uh, verses 49 to 56. And uh, it, it's a particularly challenging text, one that I've struggled with quite a bit while I was away. And I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowd, when you see a Clouds rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say it's going to be scorching hot today. And it happens. You hypocrites, don't you don't you know that you, you know how to interpret the, the appearances of earth and sky? But why do you not know how to interpret the present? this 
summarize, we felt it was important to give our youth a different experience. Now I'm sure God is pleased whenever and wherever the need is served and the least of these are helped. But I'm convinced that God loves the cities of our world, the great metropolitan areas teeming with humanity in all of our glory and grime. When the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of our Lord, there will be a great reversal in our cities. The biblical vision is of a new Jerusalem, dazzling with the brightness of God in her midst, and a river of light running through her. That won't be a river polluted with seeping septic tanks, industrial waste, and chemicals to keep our grass green. It won't be a metropolis divided into geographic areas Haves over here, have nots stay over there. It won't be a city where a young store manager trying to begin her life and support herself in a responsible way is gunned down for a few dollars. Or where a young man is executed for playing music too loudly at a gas station. Or where children are deemed accepted collateral damage in the disputes of adults. The kingdom of God, when it comes to our cities, will bring shalom, God's harmony, God's intended peace and wholeness. I think it may look something like the St. Bernard Project. That's the organization with which we work in New Orleans to rebuild the ruins of homes lives crushed by hurricane floods, carpet-bagging contractors, and decades of poverty. The staff of the St. Bernard Project, I think you would ask any of the youth that went, which are really an idealistic young group of people who believe that their lives are best used as an instrument of the rebuilding of communities that have been struck by disasters. Our week in New Orleans was oppressively hot and damp. Our two work crews of 10 persons each bent into the work day after day, nonetheless. One of the difficult tasks of uh, the home rebuilding was tiring. And I watched with pride as our young people tackled an especially intricate area in which to lay the tile. Day after steaming day, they worked on a project for which they had no previous experience. Their hair matted with sweat, their shirts soaked all morning, all afternoon, 100 plus degree temperatures. They took no shortcuts, they settled for nothing short in getting it exactly right for that homeowner. They epitomized the attitude of our entire group. I was really proud of them. And as I read this text over that week while I was gone, thinking about today, I, I couldn't help but think about the tiling. The tiling. After you 
prepare the circuits of hiring and, and measure the pieces and cut them and glue them down, but then the last step is the grouting. You have to fill in the spaces between the tiles. You have to smooth it over. And I was thinking how nice it would be if, if life had something like that, something that could gently skim over the cracks and fissures in my life up all the places that were meant to be filled. I've come to confess that sometimes I like to think about Jesus this way. As someone who tenderly moves across my life, fills it up, heals it, makes it complete, this Jesus is a great God. You, you would want to, to walk to school with him, maybe. You'd, you'd want to hang out with him. He's sweet gentle and kind. He's the Jesus with whom we probably enjoy spending time. But as you have already noticed, I'm sure, that Pharisee, Lord Jesus, is not uh, present in the text this morning. Instead of being right, this Jesus is a jackhammer, a, a crowbar, somebody who breaks division instead of peace. Families of discord rather than harmony. What in the world are we to do with such a troubling and ominous text? I mean, Jesus, why no peace? We, we need peace. We've got plenty of division. Everywhere I look, I see division. Every sound I hear seems to be a voice of polarization. Families divided, communities divided, worlds. What? Why do we need more division? I don't understand it. I think the key to looking at this troubling and challenging text is that it is a perfect example of why it's so important to understand the particulars in relation to the whole. We can't separate these words of Jesus from all his other words and all his actions. Context is crucial here. Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. Hostility is reaching an ever-increasing intensity. The opposition is about to boil over with rage. Jesus knows it. He knows what he's heading into. He wishes it were already over. This baptism of fire in the end of the It's crunch time for Jesus. Put up or shut up. Do or die. Go all the way with God or pull back to save himself. The stakes could not be higher now, nor the time more urgent. He uses a meteorological comparison. He says, you see the clouds on your Doppler radar, you can know to the minute when it's going to hit your neighborhood. You know all these things. You have so much technology and knowledge. But do you not see the time of crisis we are in? Do you not realize how important are the choices you make today? And then there is the author of Luke. 
author of part one, the Gospel of Luke, and part two, the Acts of the Apostles, he has an emerging awareness that martyrdom might be the fate of some Christians. The church was caught in the crossfire of the Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire in 66-70 AD. And thereafter, there was a split from the synagogue by the church. More and more, it moved away from its roots, or it was forced out, leaving the followers of Christ to make excruciatingly difficult decisions that would put them at odds with their government, with their religion, and sometimes even with their family. I come to bring division, not peace. Or as Matthew says, a sword. I come to bring a sword. Jesus is not blessing this state of affairs. He's only being honest with us in naming them. Jesus' words are not prescriptive as if wielding swords and causing division were God's blessed, God intended. The followers of Christ brought, have brought more swords into the world, for sure, whether through medieval crusades or contemporary justifications of violence, in order to keep peace or restore order. But Jesus' words is describing what he is about to endure and what are the possible consequences of following him for anyone who wants to come after him. There is a poignant story in the Gospel of John where Jesus comes into a village to meet the man who's been blind from birth and of course Jesus heals him but when the villagers see the man has visions, they ask him how he was healed. He tells them about Jesus. The Pharisees get wind of this. They refuse to believe it. They go around interrogating everyone they can find. The man sticks to his guns. He tells them again, Jesus has healed me. So they go around, they go around, and sadly, no one in the village defends the man. Not even his parents. And so, John reports that they drove him out of the village. This man was healed and converted to faith in Jesus. He was made whole, and he ended up having to sacrifice his whole relational world. He disliked admitting it, but families often fail to be the places of support and nurture that we need them to be. Children can rebel. Parents can be unrelentingly rigid or refuse to support their children. We hurt each other all the time. And sometimes it's the one closest to us whom we hurt most deeply or who hurt us. This is, as I said, a troubling text. It's a part of the section of Luke where Jesus is talking about faithful discipleship. Our scripture lesson this morning is about Jesus' own faithful discipleship. And 
submission. It is a choice. The world may hate us when we seek its well-being in the same way that it rejected Christ. But Christ has overcome the world. Jesus said, be of good cheer. In the world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. And so we proceed with confidence, knowing that the ruler of this world has no power over us. Maybe this is strange language to you, this idea of power being bad. I believe we live in a world of swords. Some in our wallets, some in our words, some in our hearts. And the divisions among us are threatening. But the strange Savior whose name Save us from that violence. Oh Lord, 